Welcome to Bethany. If you'd like to, turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're continuing in our study of Galatians. It's always kind of fun to see if other people are doing this. And uh, if you happen to be over by Walnut Ridge, you'll notice that they're going right through Galatians. In fact, they're in Galatians chapter 4 this morning. And, uh, and then there's other related passages. I've been alternating here and, and going down Cedar Rapids. And last Sunday at Cedar Rapids, uh, the, the verses were out of the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And so they're kind of going through the same kind of uh, passage that we're going to go through this morning. So let's read uh, the first five verses of uh, chapter 4. I'm reading from New American Standard Bible. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray. As we look at some of the wonderful privileges that are ours because Jesus Christ loved us and died for us, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, exactly what our position in Christ is, that you would help us to, to live in the freedom and privileges that are ours as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So we ask for your blessing. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about living as adult Christians. And that's really what this passage is, is about this morning. Um, but let's do a little review. I like to review so we're all on the same page. Galatians has a very straightforward outline. It's divided into three parts, two chapters each. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are biographical. Paul's defending the gospel that changed his life because his message and his person are under attack. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal. They deal with justification by faith. That was Paul's message. And then the last two chapters, 5 and 6, are practical. It shows the, the power of this gospel to change lives. Biographical section, as, as we looked at it, Paul is, is defending his apostleship, that he was called by Jesus Christ. He's just as much an apostle as any of the others, and his message. And uh, he goes through his, his life, and the point of that is to show that, that nowhere could he have gotten his message from some other men. There wasn't time, there wasn't contact. No, as he said on the road to Damascus, and later in the desert of Arabia, Jesus Christ gave him his message. Chapters 3 and 4 um, deal with justification. And just spend a little time on this so we're all clear on what justification by faith is. 
Sometimes you hear the phrase justification just as if I'd never sinned. And that doesn't cover it. Justification is not simply forgiveness, and it's not pardon. Uh, when you are forgiven of your sins, yes, your sins are, are, are taken away, but there's no positive thing about your life. And pardon, uh, while your sins are, the, the just penalty of your sins are removed, you're still known as a sinner because you, you were pardoned from crimes that you were guilty of. But God declares you righteous. The judge of the whole world in a judicial act because Jesus Christ died for our sins. And when I receive Jesus Christ, his death pays for my sins. Yes, I'm forgiven. But God credits to my account all the righteousness of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life before God. And so when God looks at me, Hard to get a hold of this. When God looks at me, he says, that way, boy. <laughs> you are righteous in my sight. And so Paul is trying to get across this idea of justification um, to, to the Galatians because it's being attacked. So the doctrinal section, uh, two weeks ago, we looked back. Paul looks back at the Galatians' experience. Did you... Uh, get saved by, by hearing the word uh, or, or by the law? Did, did the spirit come into your life? Because at the moment you received Christ, you heard the gospel, or once you began keeping the law, and it was obvious from their experience, all these things happened when they got saved. And then he says, let's look at the life of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith. That was his experience, the father of faith. And then he looked at the law. If you want to try to keep the law, if that's your standard of living, you're under a curse. Because the law itself says, cursed is the man who doesn't keep it perfectly. But Christ, Christ came. He hung on a cross. Every person in the Old Testament who hung on a cross, not only did they die, not only were, were they killed, but that was seen as they were cursed by God. And Jesus Christ took our curse and hung on that cross so that we might have blessing instead of curse, the blessing of Abraham, this justification by faith that God had promised um, that to the world through Abraham. And then the second half of the chapter you looked at last week, Paul lays out the relationship between law and justification by faith, um, which is the promised blessing to Abraham, which is uh, the gospel of the grace of God. In this passage, um, the word promise is used eight times as he compares the law to what God's given. It's a promise to us. It's not earned. It's something God has promised. And so um, Paul points out that the law cannot change the promise. That was what the Judaizers claimed. When the law came in, well, yes, there was this promise, but when the law came in, uh, it modified the promise. No, the promise is independent of the law. The law is not greater than the promise. The law was temporary. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 3 says, until the seed, 
the Lord Jesus should come. The third thing is the law was not contrary to the promise. The law was not given uh, to provide life. It couldn't. It was, it was given to reveal sin and to lead us to Christ. And lastly, the law could, cannot do what the promise can do. The law cannot justify you before God. The law cannot declare you righteous. The law can only declare you guilty. And um, the law could not give life or bring oneness between God and man and man and man. So in the beginning of, of chapter 4, Paul is going to take two thoughts from Galatians 3 and show how they come together to give us our new position in Christ as sons of God. Um, look at uh, verse 19 of chapter 3. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The law was temporary until the seed would come to whom the promise was made. And then down in verse 24, therefore the law has come uh, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is temporary. God had a plan in place through this promise that the, the obedience to the law, the putting ourselves under the law, what the law could do for us would come to an end when Christ came. And the law, one of the purposes of the law was to lead us to Christ. The law teaches us, uh, teaches us that God is holy. The law teaches us that we are sinners. The law shows us we need a savior. The law leads us to this uh, savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come in to chapter four, um, he's, he's going to bring these two ideas together. Uh, that word translated um, tutor or schoolmaster is really a word that means child conductor. In the households of Paul's day, there was a slave whose responsibility was to prepare the child for maturity. And this slave had a lot of power. He could forbid the child to do something. He, could, uh, he taught the child. He protected the child. He could even discipline the child. But his purpose was to bring the child from childhood to, to adulthood, to maturity. And um, so when we come to chapter 4, Paul's, Paul's kind of thinking, all right, what do these Judaizers, how are these Judaizers attacking? What are they teaching? And the Judaizers may have argued if the Old Testament believers, who were also heirs of the promise, had the Mosaic law, why should not Christians also have to keep it? Well, there were people of faith in the Old Testament. They, they were made righteous like Abraham by faith, but they had to keep the law. Now you've been made righteous by faith. Why don't you have to keep the law? And so Paul's going to uh, address this in, in the first part of chapter 4. And he's going to do this with an illustration. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
Now again I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You have a child who's heir of his father's estate. Paul says those Old Testament Jews, the Jews before Christ came, were like that child, that minor child. Uh, Think, for example, of a Roman who's maybe been given a job to go overseas on behalf of the Roman Empire. He has lands, estates, other things there in Italy, but he's going to be gone. And he has a 14-year-old who's his heir. So no doubt he turns to that 14-year-old and says, run everything for me. Not if he's not a dummy. He says to the the guardians of his son, raise him up to be an adult. Teach him the things he's going to need to be an adult. He says to the managers of his estate, you run the estate. And he says to his son, grow up. And then he sets a date. In America, we we have uh, at age 18, certain things are possible because you're recognized as an adult. I go to a camp, and if they're under 18, there are certain tools they can't use at the camp because they can't be sued. You can only be sued as an adult. So if you're using a tool that can injure somebody else, the law says you don't let the kid do that because if he injures someone else, he can't be sued because he's not an adult. Well, in Rome, the dad decided... This is when he becomes an adult. This is when he becomes the Lord of the estate. And so Paul says in verse 3, So also we, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. This kid was owner of everything, but he's under slaves. And he says, listen, he's no different than a slave Because he's being told what to do. He can't control anything, even though he's Lord of all. He says, while we, note the word we, he's talking about the Jews. Later, he'll he'll use the word you, talking uh, about the, the Gentiles in the church. But he says, listen, um, we... When we were children, we're held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. When we were under the law, while we were children, we were held in bondage. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was to be later revealed. Literally, you can translate that, we were imprisoned. Another person said, we were under uh, lawful custody of the law. The whole nation of Israel was under the control, under the, the bondage, until Christ came. He said, that's, that's where we were. We were bound uh, by the law. Um, 
under the elemental things of the world. This is a phrase only used by Paul. It's only used three times in the Bible. You also find it in Colossians 2 and uh, verses 8 and 20. In the illustration, it's parallel to the guardians and managers. And the expression seems to refer to all the regulations of the Mosaic law, particularly the features that ordered life. Paul's going to give some examples later of what the Galatians are adopting. But he says, you know, if you went to, to Israel, it was a very ordered life. And they were under bondage to the law. That's how we were before Christ came. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. If at Christmas time, a lot of times you'll, you'll have this verse uh, used, and we'll talk about the fullness of time. When the Greeks came and, and the Greek language was used throughout the entire Mediterranean area and even farther um, to, the, to the east, which made, uh, if you went and you were carrying the gospel, you didn't have to learn 32 languages. You could take it to Greek and, and most of the people would understand it. The Roman peace, there were pirates on the Mediterranean Ocean until Rome wiped them out. There were brigands along the road until Rome wiped them out. The Romans built roads that are still used today. And they did that, and it facilitated travel so those carrying the gospel could freely travel and and take the gospel with them. And then there were the Jewish synagogues. Uh, Back uh, during the... The exile in Babylon, there was no temple. They started these synagogues. Wherever there were 10 men, Jewish men, they could start a synagogue. And, and every Sabbath, a passage of Scripture would be read in Hebrew and then read in the local language. And then a sermon would be preached. And not only were the Jews gathering there, but people who heard about this one God and were interested could come in and hear the Old Testament scriptures uh, being taught and learn about this God uh, of the Old Testament. And it became the perfect place for, for Paul and others to go to the synagogue and speak to people about the promises of Christ that were also in the Old Testament. And so God had really um, put together uh, the perfect time. And so this phrase really has the idea uh, It was the date set by the Father. From God's standpoint, the time was ready. And what did he do? And and I love that if you take out that phrase, this is one of those but God verses. Israel was under the bondage of the law, ordering their lives, telling them what to do. But God, in the fullness of time, sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Lord Jesus, fully God, the Son of God, speaks of his deity. Born of a woman speaks of his humanity, his genuine humanity. There's probably also a reference there to his virgin birth. He was born under the law. He was a Jew. He was like those other Jews, under the regulations of the law, and he kept it perfectly. 
the first one who ever did that. And because of who he was, look what happened. Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He says, listen, the purpose God sent his son, back in chapter 3, verse 13, it was to redeem us from the curse of the law. The Jews were under a curse because they hadn't kept the law perfectly. And God redeemed them from that curse by the coming of Jesus Christ. The Jews were under the bondage of the law. And Jesus Christ, by his coming, redeemed them from that bondage. And how did he do it? That you might receive adoption as sons. There's two words that we think are absolutely interchangeable, and they're not. One is child of God, and one is son of God. A child of God means you've been born again into the family of God. You're part of God's family. Every child of God is born again, born by the Spirit. If you're not born again, you're not a child of God. You're not in the family. A son of God is one who has been placed as a son. That day, when that 13-year-old reached that date that his father set, and that day came, he was placed as a son. Now those slaves who have been bossing him around, they took his orders. Now those managers who didn't like his ideas for running the estate, they took his orders because he was a full son with all the rights and privileges of a full son in the household. And so child of God has to do with the fact that I've been born again into the family of God. Son of God has to do with the fact that I have all the rights and privileges as a full family member. I suppose in our household, you knew that day time when you moved from, at Thanksgiving time, you moved from the kids' table up to the adult table. Every child of God is a full adult in the family of God because of the coming of Jesus Christ. And he gives an example. He says, verse 6, because you are sons. He's saying, listen, you Gentiles... Not only did he do this for the Jews, but you Gentiles have been made sons too. You've been placed as sons too. See, the Judaizers were saying, no, no, no. You're not fully part of the family. You're not adults in the family because you're not keeping the law. You need to be like us. You're not worthy of, of being a full adult family member. But he says, no, you are sons and here's the proof. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sent his son to die for our sins, to redeem us so that we could become sons of God. He, spent, he sent his spirit to indwell us so that we could experience the reality of the new position we have. And what's the example he uses here and in Romans? We cry, Abba, Father. It was rare before the Lord Jesus came for people to call God Father. 
They just didn't do it. He was Even today, if you go through uh, the Passover uh, program that the Jews have, they'll say, oh, God of the universe. We say, Dad, I need help. Who did that? The Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit that we are fully placed sons. I can't, I don't have to wait until I've checked a bunch of boxes and I've learned this and I've learned that and I've got this going in my life and I got that going in my life. No, I can come and call him Abba Father. Abba's the Aramaic word for daddy. Uh, it's, it's a word not a formalism, father. No, it's dad. I, I need your help. And God allows that. Why? Because when you came to Christ, you were not just made a child of God. You were made a full standing son or daughter of God with the full rights and privileges of being a son of God. Verse 7, he sums it up. Therefore you, and this is singular. He's saying, therefore you, and you, and you, and you, and you aren't slaves anymore. God's not watching you saying, well, have you kept the law? Have you checked all the boxes? No, you are a son. And if a son, an heir, because you're a full adult, you've come in to all the rights and privileges of being an heir. The minor child, he, he's a child in the family. He, he technically is Lord of all, but he doesn't get to, to have all the rights and privileges. All the rights and privileges of being a son of God are ours. And we get it at the moment of salvation. What an amazing thing. So Paul answers the question, why is the law not binding on Christians as it had been on Old Testament saints? It's because the law's guardianship ended with the coming of Christ and the maturity of sons achieved in Christ is due to God who sent his son and his spirit to bring it about. What did you do to earn sonship? Zip. It's a gift from God. And God's given us the rights and privileges, and, and he's going to ask us, live as adults. I have to admit, when, when we had Thanksgiving and I moved up to the adult table, my heart often was back at the kids' table. <laughs> we had a whale of a lot more fun back at the kids' table than we did at the adults' table. And sometimes we look at Christianity that way. Yeah, you know, I want to go back. No, God's given us everything to live as full adults with all the rights and privileges, with all the help 
that God wants us to live. And when we get over to chapters 5 and 6, he's going to talk about that. But Paul's going to move on to another subject here that, that we want to cover in the next few verses. Paul's aware that religious feelings can be stirred up by certain settings, ceremonies, and rituals. And it doesn't mean these things are wrong, but it's possible to go through the ritual and have no understanding of the meaning it's meant to convey. There are probably hundreds of thousands of people who have been baptized with no clue what it really was meant to convey. There are ceremonies that people can go through. But one of the problems is, is you can be satisfied with the ceremonies or the event and, and lose the understanding of what God really wanted you to experience and know by that, that uh, ceremony or that event. And so Paul's going to make three uh, appeals in this next section because he knows the Judaizers are, are using that natural uh, inclination. Uh, you know, there are certain songs that you sing that, that touch your heart, don't they? Well, they, they know how to use these things, and they're using all these ceremonies and special feast days and all these other things to tug at the Galatians. Well, you don't have that. No, what we have, Ryer Hebrew says those are shadows. What we have is the reality. And so Paul does three things to, to call them. He, first of all, he, he points out in, in verses 8 through 11 the dangers of legalism. Look at verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Paul says, you Gentiles, you know, there was a time when you were enslaved in the worship of, of idols to deities that weren't even real. And, and you were involved in all these ceremonies and all these things, and, and you were uh, following these, these gods uh, that weren't real. Why would you want to go back to that kind of bondage? I remember speaking to a missionary one time, and uh, I was asking him, he, he worked with indigenous uh, tribes, and uh, he was talking about the pro some of the problems they were having with anthropologists who were saying, you need to leave those people alone, they're happy, they're in touch with nature, and Christianity just messes them up. And uh, he said, you know, I asked one of these natives who had come to know Christ, is that true? Have we messed you up? And the man said, before I got saved, I thought there were spirits in the river, spirits in the trees, spirits in the sky, and we lived in absolute fear of all these spirits trying to find ways to appease them all the time. Since you came and taught us the word, I know the God who made all of those things. And he loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And he's preparing a home for me in heaven. And he allows me to talk to him and take my cares to him. Why would I want to go back? 
And Paul says, listen, you, you understand following something that's worthless. Because you once were in it, and now you understand it. Now you've been saved, and you know God. And even more important, that's man's perspective. God, you understand that you were known by God. That's God's perspective on salvation. God knew you, loved you, began a rescue operation to save you from your sins. And now, why would you want to go back? And you might say, but the Gentiles were pagans and never under Mosaic law. Why would the adoption of Mosaic ceremonies be turning back again? Because it's the same pattern they had under paganism. They thought the ceremonies was where the power lay. They thought the ritual was where the power lay. And people who are caught up in legalism really do believe it's the keeping of all, checking of all these little boxes, the keeping of all these things is what gives me merit with God. That's where the power lays. Instead of my relationship with Jesus Christ, my walk with Jesus Christ. Paul calls these things weak and worthless elemental things. Weak because they're powerless. They can't justify nor energize for godly living. They're worthless because they actually produce nothing and are completely unable to supply the, the riches that God has promised through faith in Christ. And they would lead the the Galatians, into the same kind of slavery that they experienced in paganism. He gives an example, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. They begin the movement towards adopting the Mosaic calendar. Well, let's, let's keep the Sabbath. Don't do anything on the Sabbath. Oh, there are these special monthly ceremonies that we need to start keeping. And there's, what about the Feast of Tabernacles? What about the, the Feast of Passover? Maybe we need to start keeping those. And, and Rosh Hashanah, the, the celebration of the new year. Well, well we, should, we should keep that. And Paul's afraid. In verse 11, for I fear for you, perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Paul says, I see you moving towards these emphasis on, on the law, emphasis on these ceremonies, these rituals, as though that's where the power is. And I fear. He said, I labored. It's a word that means to labor to the point of exhaustion. And I fear it's all waste. When I left you, there were little lighthouses proclaiming the gospel. And the Judaizers want to put you in a place uh, to become a place that promotes the doing of the law, which cannot save. An emphasis on works to gain righteousness. You can go into a lot of places that say they're Christian, and they'll tell you, keep the Ten Commandments, live a good life, and you'll make it to heaven. And it's wrong. And Paul says, that's what's happening in Galatia. And I'm afraid that all that effort, all that suffering, 
is wasted. The second appeal he makes is appeal for them to remember their relationship. Um, Verse 12. I beg of you, brethren. I I plead with you. Paul's deeply uh, distressed. Uh, He says, remember my example. Um, I've talked about how hard I labored. He deeply cares for these people. What was Paul's example when he came to Galatia? Paul says, uh, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Did Paul keep all his Jewish uh, regulations? Did Paul live as a Jew among them? No. He lived as a Gentile. He became like them. He fellowshiped with them. Peter was going the opposite direction. He was standing back from the Gentiles. He was beginning to act like a Jew. Paul confronted him. He says, I want you. Here I am. I'm a Jew. And in Christ, I have freedom from all that, all those rituals, all those things. And you're Gentiles and you're trying to keep them. I want you to have the freedom in Christ that I have. Because he's made me a son of God. He said, I want you to remember how you received me. The end of verse 12, you have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Paul says, The history of our relationship isn't that you've done me wrong. He says, remember when I first came? I came because I was sick. Um, Some commentators feel that Paul maybe got malaria down in the lowlands, down by the Mediterranean Sea, and he had to come up ahead of schedule to Galatia up in the mountains or the highlands uh, to get over his malaria. Others suggest that uh, when he was stoned at Lystra, he, he was... He was coming in a weak condition. But Paul said, when I showed up and I was sick and weak, you you didn't scorn me. You didn't loathe me. It's a word that means to spit out, to reject. You didn't say, who's this guy? Look at him. No, you received me as an angel of God. You received me as though God had sent an angel down to speak to you. As Christ himself, you saw as, as I spoke of Christ and I, as I communicated his word, you said this guy came from God as, as a messenger for us and, and he was commissioned by Christ. That's how you received me. Even though I, I had this bodily condition that, that should have uh, tempted you to disregard me and my message. And then in verses 15 and 16, he says, remember your joy. Verse 15, where then is the sense of blessing you had? We read a number of verses out of Psalm 89 and and Psalm 32 in the first message, and it was translated joy instead of blessing. Because this word blessing has the idea of a position that causes you great joy. When you got saved, when your sins were forgiven, and you were made children of God and sons of God, that position filled you with great joy, great freedom in your relationship with God. 
Where did that joy go? He says, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. You were so filled with joy because of I came and brought you this message. Uh, here, the eye is a metaphor for something that's one of your most valuable treasures. You would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Because I had given you this great treasure of the gospel. And so he ends this section by saying, happened. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And now you're questioning me. Now you're withdrawing from me. You never did that before. Our relationship was one of closeness. And then he says, remember my attitude towards you. This actually goes down to verse 20, but we're just going to look at verses 18 and 19, or 17 and 18, because 18 and 19 will, um, or 19 and 20 will, is a bridge to the next section. Verse 17, they eagerly seek you, not commendedly, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. Paul says this word, eagerly seek or zealously seek means uh, to, to seek after a person to court them, to court them, uh, to gain a, a relationship with them. It doesn't tell you whether the purpose and the motive are good or bad. It's just the action. And Paul says, you know, it's not a bad thing to be courted by someone. I remember a young man who was dating a gal and Sadly, he courted the girl's mom and dad. He, and, and they loved him to death. And while he was courting the dad and mom, another guy came along and courted the girl, and they ended up getting married. Um, Paul says, the Judaizers are coming in, and they're courting you. But their motives are wrong. They're not honorable. They're courting you, and they're trying to drive a wedge between you and me, and a wedge between you and the gospel. And when they've done that, then they're going to reverse the, the roles. And they're going to withdraw from you, and, and you're going to have to court them. That's their, their plan. They're courting you now to cut you off from that which is real and valuable so that later you'll court them. And so he says in verse 18, but it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. Not only when I'm present with you. He said, you know, when I was present with you, I courted you too. <laughs> I wanted to win you to Christ. I wanted to win you to the gospel. But my courting was commendable. It was honorable because it's the truth. And he, and he says, when I'm present with you, the next couple of verses, he's going to talk about his ongoing concern for them. Well, what lessons, real quickly, do I want you to take away from this? Here's a quote by Warren Wiersbe that, that I really like. Legalism gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads the believer back into a second childhood of the Christian experience. The Judaizers are over at the kids' table. They're saying, we're going to have a lot more fun over here. Come on over here. You just got to keep all these rules. And you're not going to grow. 
You're not going to grow in your relationship with Christ. You're not going to grow in your understanding of the Spirit. The Spirit's not going to mature you. Legalism looks because, oh, look at all the things I'm doing. Look at all the boxes I've checked. Look, look, look at me. Look at all the things I, I'm, I'm doing. But it's a false maturity. In Christ, we're all sons and daughters and heirs. We're given all the rights and privileges of adult family members. You're given the right to address the God of the universe as dad. Do you take, do you use that right? You have the right for the Holy Spirit to guide you. And when we get in chapter 5 in, in a couple of weeks, all the different things the Spirit of God wants to do because the power of the gospel to change lives. Are you wanting to live like an adult? Judaizers say, listen, we'll just give you a list of things to do. And you'll be so much better than everybody around you. Because you've got all these boxes that are checked. Jesus says, come walk with me. Let my spirit speak into your heart and change your heart. And Paul's concerned for the Galatians. And I think if Paul was around today, he'd be concerned in a lot of places. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you don't put us as a minor child. You've, you bring us into your family and you place us as full adult heirs. You give us all these rights and privileges. Lord, help us not to live uh, under the slavery of box-checking but walking in the freedom of, of your spirit, speaking to our hearts and leading us uh, through your word and, and us taking all these privileges that you've given us and living in the fullness of them. Help us, God, not to rob ourselves because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.